If no one sheds light on what is being done in the darkness, it will never stop. One in three girls and one in six boys are sexually abused and told to hush. Breaking the silence is the first step to healing. Healing is a lifelong journey. Find your voice. Your story matters. Pain put me into hiding. Purpose called me out. May the silence be broken. Thanks for listening to the One Voice Podcast. It's a safe place for conversation on relevant topics with real life stories to encourage and inspire you along life's journey of healing from sexual abuse. I'm Mary O'Brien and now Nicole Braddock Bromley. Gosh, it's so nice to be back together. I I just adore this space that we have. Yeah. Um, I just think it's so precious to be able to chat with other survivors on this platform and and just to hear their journeys like everyone's story is so different but we're all connected in some way and yeah. it's just such a beautiful yeah I just think it's such a great way to meet up a couple times a month and I'm really grateful that we've been able to continue this I mean this is what aren't we like three and a half years in or something Mary it sounds right and I'm still just pinching myself and like you said it's such a sacred little special connecting point that I'm so grateful for with technology. (laughs) Right. Yeah. 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 No. And I'm grateful for you. I know you do so much behind the scenes to make these happen every other week, along with everything else you're doing right now. So thank you so much for that. I just want to give you some props there. Um, And I know we have a really cool guest today, Barbara Clark, who is about to release a new memoir called The Red Kitchen. And it's coming out April 6th. And we were just already kind of engaging in conversation right off the bat without pushing record, even though I wish we had. (laughs) But let's just dive right in from here. I think it's important for people to understand the changes that our world has gone through. Because in a matter of just my lifetime, Barbara, I mean, I've gone from a teenager who we never talked about these kinds of things to now 40 years old and I mean, the church is being flipped upside down, Um, major institutions of leadership, government level celebrities. I mean, we are talking about it in every place of the workplace of families. And, um, you know, you look maybe a couple of days older than me. I don't know how old you are. (laughs) Yeah. Couple. (laughs) Very kind. (laughs) Thank you. But in your lifetime, like, what has that looked like for you? And and how do you feel about where it is now? Hmm. Well, uh, a couple of things. Uh, It was six years old when I was abused by my father. um, And it was so traumatic, which is not unusual. I locked it away. I was told to keep a secret. And I did so. I, I don't honestly know, thinking back, If I had come out of the car and into my grandmother's house and said, I have something terrible to tell you, I don't know if I would have been believed. Uh, And if I hadn't been, it would have been even harder to be me and my family, I think. So it never occurred to me. I mean, I I didn't even remember it for years and years. But I had these sensory things that wouldn't go away. This certain smell of rotting leaves that every time I would come across it, I would get this real strong feeling and also you know in the beginning because of my kind of chaotic family I really thought my mother was the problem um, because she was pretty wild and um, and 
kind of bombastic and then very loving. She was kind of both both things. Um, <clears throat> and then someplace sort of in my late adolescence, I started to really look at the system that I had been, that I'd grown up in of, you know, the dad is smart and wise and kind and good. And my father was mostly silent. He rarely supported my mother on anything. He was always go ask your mother if I ask him anything. Um, and I began to really look at kind of the grooming uh, in a way that went on, you know, in, and in my day uh, as a child, you know, like daddy's little girl, that was a song and you wanted to be daddy's little girl. It was really encouraged. And um, so I think he, you know, I'm, I know he took advantage of a special relationship that had been encouraged by the culture and by to some degree, my mother and certainly by um, everything you saw and heard around you, the, the dads, I mean, the patriarchy was to be worshipped, it was not to be questioned. Absolutely. Um, and then, you know, sort of in my adolescent, late adolescence and then into my own marriages, I really, and then the women's movement changed everything. Um, mm -hmm. For me, I really saw what I had been believing and and mostly feeling about myself and what I could be and who I was. So, um, I mean, it's this kind of the story of the book, but I, I went to Kenya, I worked in the summer for a summer in a really end of the tarmac village. And I had no labels. I wasn't a wife, a mother, a daughter, a sister. And I really had not only the experience of a lifetime, but I really had a chance to see who I was mm -hmm. and came back different. And, um, but, you know, I was still working, had kids, was divorced, um, moved around a lot. And yet, you know, my family was always with me, even though I never took up writing about it for a long time. Um, and then I wrote, uh, I started to write about it, but I wrote it as a novel because I was too, one, ashamed and too, too, um, worried about the repercussions of writing about what actually happened to me after I knew what happened to me, which was in my fifties. Mm -hmm. I had, you know, hypnotherapy mm -hmm. and it didn't take too many sessions before it all just came pouring out and um, a tremendous relief. And then a huge sadness about really remembering it. Remembering it was really the easiest part. It was dealing with it. That was mm -hmm. the hard part to see, look back and see, how that event at six had shaped my whole life. Um, and then sort of setting on the path for recovery of that. Um, hmm. I did you know, very Barbara, I talk <laughs> with so many survivors who they know that something has happened, yeah. but they don't remember it. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And I think that holds a lot of survivors back. I mean, we're running some groups right now, some virtual support groups, and a lot of the survivors that are meeting with us each week um, share that same experience where it's like they want to receive, they want to go through the healing, but they feel like they can't fully because mm -hmm. they don't have the memories. And I wonder what you would say to that, having gone through your own journey of uncovering and unearthing. Well, um, when I uncovered mine in therapy, that was the exact time when Elizabeth Loftus was beginning the false memory syndrome, mm. Yeah, which made it doubly hard. Absolutely. <clears throat> and I think that, um, I, I don't know if I would call it the body, but I, the body does not lie. Mm. Um, and yeah. 
that is the first go-to place I think people need to go. Um, and then, you know, definitely I would say some therapy to help guide the process uh, and not so that you feel sort of safe. I mean, I had a safe chair that I went to before I started hypnotherapy and the therapist's office, and I wouldn't start until I was there. And I use that chair the rest of my life. If I get into a spot sometime, I sit in this Adirondack chair and get grounded and feel like, okay, this is, I can do this now. So, I mean, I think support is another uh, part of the, of the process. Yeah. Um, and then I, I don't, I, I think it's, so interesting that you know we believe so much but we don't want to believe ourselves um and i think that is um a challenge that we all have uh, because there are a lot of people who don't like to talk about this a lot of people who wish it would just go away right. and a lot of people who may or may not believe your story when you tell it mm -hmm. i wrote this all as a novel because I didn't know if I could write it as a memoir mm. um, and it wasn't working. And I began to write it as a memoir. I took a nine month memoir writing class. Mm -hmm. The other thing I would say to, to people in your groups is to, and I would love to get involved in this aspect of it is about how writing is so helpful mm -hmm. <clears throat> because you can really see what you're thinking um, and then you can look at it again and go another level and see what's underneath that. I mean, it's just the process of writing this memoir was the first draft. I left the abuse completely out. I just didn't want to talk about it. I didn't think I had a right to. I didn't believe, you know, I believed my story by that time, but I didn't know if anybody else would believe it. Hmm. Um, and the most important thing for me in getting the story on paper goes back to my mother who, when I came back home and told her what had happened years later, my father was already dead. Um, she believed me and she never, she wasn't entirely sympathetic to me. <clears throat> she was mostly upset that she had been married to this man, mm -hmm. um, but she didn't question my truth. And that really settled me into saying, okay, you know, I'm, I'm going to be okay now. I've brought this where it belongs. I took it home and it's theirs to deal with. And, um, and I can go on now with my own life. And um, so I would say, you know, writing, having a good support group, uh, your program is certainly a wonderful one to be in. Um, and then knowing that your body just is going to tell you the truth. Um, yeah. And uh, I mean, I have this wonderful quote from Mark Twain that the aim of art is to alleviate shame. Um, and I think that's what writing can do is it can, it can kind of break, give you a door into something that you maybe had the door shut for way too long or mm -hmm. never thought you would ever open it or, um, or just, I just really remembered there's a door there. <clears throat> and I don't, you know, it, it's never left me. Um, I'm still sort of a neighborhood watch of one when I'm out certain places and I see an older man and a younger kid. I, I you know, I just have a reflex. It's just, if right. they get a, have a certain look, yep. I just, I just notice. Um, yeah. That's yeah. survivor intuition. Yeah. Yeah. And you know, your radar is pretty darn good after these experiences. You, yeah. you know, it's self-protection and it's also self-detection and uh, yeah. 
Yeah. And would and wouldn't you agree that, you know, as survivors who, you know, we know that something happened and um we know the door is there, like you mentioned, but yeah. even if we don't have the whole picture of what's on the other side of the door, healing yeah. is still possible. Yeah, it is. And you never know. <clears throat> I mean, that's you know, you take a a step in and you there may be store, more steps waiting that you're not re- quite ready to have it. I mean, it seems to me like uh, when I was really in a solid enough place to have this memory come up mm-hmm. is when it came up. Mm-hmm. It was almost kind of outside of me. It was just, I don't know, I go back to the body and the unconscious mind that wants to have relief in some way. Is yeah. that when I felt sturdy enough and got myself into therapy, that's when I had the memory. And, and it was crystal clear. I was no doubt that it happened. I could see it all. Um, mm. And, um, but I think I wasn't ready until that yeah. time almost. Yeah. I think and the body protects. Yeah. I think you have to be ready. And mm-hmm. I think you, if you listen to your body, you will know when you're ready um, yeah. to really get to it. And, you know, I had lots of things I was sort of, you know, that joke about the guy wants help from God and God sends, you know, a boat and then sends a, a bird and then sends, you know, it's like God gives up and like, you know, I did all these things for you. So I had this smell that never left me. I always felt like my father's kisses lasted too long. Mm-hmm. And he was like kind of creepy um, in very subtle ways that, uh, bothered me, but never enough that I didn't feel like I could say anything. Um, And when I, you know, look back now, I mean, he groomed not just me, but he groomed my mother as well. He pitted me against her, you know, I was his ally. Mm -hmm. Um, And it was very conscious and, you know, very destructive for for anybody. And I was so young that and it was so early in the whole process of telling that I'm not surprised it was a secret for, for so long because I yeah. didn't know what, what would I have done without it anyway. <clears throat> so did the abuse go on throughout your entire no. childhood? Well, I don't know. I yeah. only have one really strong memory. It wasn't in the house. It was in a car. Mm. Uh, he would pick me up at school. My parents were in the middle of separation, separating so it was super charged emotionally for me. And, you know, I got told in the car after he masturbated with my hand was basically what happened. Um, that if I told anybody, I would ruin our family. That, you know, my mother would make him leave. And um, I, I have to laugh sometimes. I think my mother might have shot him. <laughs> but anyway, <laughs> I don't know. Yeah. Um, you know, she was. I would have. She was kind of wild. Um Mm-hmm. So, uh, mm. you know, I just, um, I kept it for a long time. Yeah. Yeah. And I don't yeah. know if there were other events. I don't know if he was a serial molester. I, um, yeah, I don't know. Yeah. And, and I tried know. to, I, I tried to find out more by asking him kind of subtle questions and, through my life. And um, he was just a close book. He was just, even at his, I saw him weeks before he died. He was in bed. Uh, my mother was out, which was fortunate because I wasn't seeing my parents at the time. And um, he had really nothing to say. Uh, 
really nothing. I love you would have gone a long way um, to sort of some kind of reconciliation, but he never said it. He was mostly afraid my mother was going to come home and catch me there. So it was just, you know, a really um, rough ending with him. And So uh, you did confront him about the abuse? I suggested that. There, I, I didn't know exactly. I just said if there was anything that happened, if you wanted to say you were sorry for, I would like to hear it. And I'm sorry if I did anything to make your life unhappy. I, I had no idea what that might've been, except I fought with my mother a lot. And so these were like your last words with him. My, our very yeah. last words. And he looked up at me and he said, you better go. That was it. Oh, wow. So wow. that was the, that was the ending. And so, you know, I settled for trying to understand a little bit about mm-hmm. him uh, and his life. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's as far as, as far as I got. I, you know, I love him because he's my father. I think that's another hard thing for people who've been abused. To yeah. Manage. Oh, you know? for sure. Yeah. yeah. It's the DNA part I love that. And I got a lot of good things from him. I mean, he was very mm-hmm. smart and, you know, he taught me how to think a lot. Uh, my mother was more kind of physical, funny, um, a little bit wild. Uh <laughs> So I, I can't just ignore him altogether. I mean, he's, yeah. you know, half of my DNA is from him. So mm. to, ex, you know, to excuse, excommunicate him from my being is kind of weird, I think. I think it's like over the top. But how you put together somebody who abused you and how you might still love them in some way, I think is tricky. And I think that's why you need help, kind of a group or writing or a therapist or, you know, and it's kind of ongoing. I'm, I'm kind of not done with him yet. Yeah. Uh, it's just, you know, every once in a while something pops up, it's like, Oh man, I'm furious. And then I was like, okay, well, you know, I'm me now. And that was then. And I'm, it's okay. Yeah. I just, you just kind of breathe through it. I think the stuff that really is hard. The, the other part for me is that my father was sort of like the, you know, citizen community guy. He was well loved by a lot of people, well respected, you know, president of the PTA. And so he had this other whole life going on. And um, I went back for my 50th reunion in high school. And one of the, one of my class members said that he was, we were chatting and he said, you know, I'm a, I'm, I'm a, I'm a unofficial psychic. And I said, really? And he said, yeah. I said, you know, I've had some chats with your father. I was like, oh, brother. <laughs> it's like, well, you two just chat away. <laughs> yeah. Um, enjoy yourselves. Yeah. Yeah. Have a great chat. <laughs> yeah. Right. Yeah. So I, and you know, so that is another piece of the puzzle is like, how do you break the hearts of some people who think he was a great guy, you know? Yeah. And so, you know, thinking about your book, The Red mm-hmm. Kitchen, and, you know, it's focused so much on the relationship um, between you and your mom. Yeah. So going back to your story, did you tell your mom about the abuse before um, your final moments with your father or did that come later? Came later. He was mm-hmm. dead. Okay. <laughs> He'd already died. Yeah. Okay. And can you tell us about that initial conversation? And then, you know, we'll talk more about that, the healing of that, that relationship, but just wondering about the initial talk. How old were uh, you? How old was she? She was in her seventies. I was in my early fifties. And, uh, 
she was living under, you know, she'd been a widow for a number of years. My father had graciously passed on. Yeah. <laughs> and, um, and so, uh, you know, I had, would have been in therapy for about six, seven months. And I really felt confident that I had a, I had a story to tell and that I wasn't, I didn't hadn't made it up. You know, I didn't, wasn't some poor girl that really needs a story in order for people to feel sorry for her. You know, I've gone through <laughs> right. all of those stages, you know, okay. it's not true. It's, you know, I'm a bad girl. I've graduated from all of that. Um, and when I told my therapist that I was going to go tell my mother, she was like, oh boy, <laughs> she, and she was worried my mother wouldn't believe me. That was her worry. Hmm. But one of the things she said to me that I treasured through the rest of my life was that she said, you are nothing but grit. She said, you have got grit. And I really admire that amount of grit that I have. So that was I, from your mom or no, your therapist? My therapist. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And so I, you know, lived in, you know, close by, I lived one bridge across from my mom in, in the Bay area. And um, I said, I was coming over for the weekend and we would have some fun. And, and I knew that I was, that was the weekend I was going to tell her. And so we were out on her deck and um, I said, you know, there's something I want to tell you. And I said, I've been working on it for a long time. This is not going to be a good story for you to hear, but it's my story. And I want to tell you. And then if you want to ask me, whatever questions you might have, I will answer. Mm -hmm. And she said, well, I, and I said, so please don't interrupt because she was a big interrupter. You'd be in the middle of something. She'd say, do you want more coffee? (laughs) (laughs) That's a good technique. Yeah. 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 So, so I said, I don't, I don't interrupt. I'm not interrupting. You know, it's like, no, you do. Okay. So I just said what had happened. I said, I've been in therapy and I've had this memory for a very long time. I've had these sensations I didn't tell her very much about the therapy process because I really felt like that was private. Mm. And I didn't trust that she wouldn't pick around in it. Um, I didn't trust her that much. Um, yeah. I, didn't, I didn't know. I was really like a 50-50. She's either going to say that's a liar. Uh, oh, my God. Um, and her first words were, oh, my God, I was married to that man. Mm. And I, you know, I was sort of shocked that that was her first reaction but then when I thought about it well she was married to him she stayed married to him their whole life and was in a terrible marriage the whole time and I could see from her perspective it was a sacrifice that she had made for her kids I guess in the beginning and then didn't know what to do later in her life Mm -hmm. um and so she said and so I said that's the memory I have and um and she said well what are the other ones and I said, well, that's the only one I have for sure that I'm prepared to talk about. And her comment was, well, good. what's good of therapy if you don't get them all? Oh <laughs> like, <clears throat> you know, it's not like a, a 100% or zero. Um, I yeah. said, and this one's is enough. enough, mom. One's enough. I said, this is enough for me. Yeah. And um, so that was sort of where we left it. She was really undone. I gave her time to kind of settle in. We were still sitting out on the deck. And, um, and then I said, do you have anything more you want to ask me? And she said, no. Um, And I said, well, I just want to thank you for not for believing me and for not saying I I was a liar or accused me of anything false. Yeah. Um, And, and she didn't seem to turn it about her. Because well, like that happens a lot. Like, how does, okay. She did. Yeah, she did. I mean, honestly, 
most of my mother's life was always about her. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, and uh, I mean, her comment, she, she never varied from that about, you know, I was married to that man. Mm-hmm. I mean, yeah. She said that several more times. She yeah. never said to me, how awful for you or mm, I'm okay. so sorry or anything. She yeah. never apologized for that. And Aww. honestly, the fact that she didn't just say you're a liar and you, you know, your father would never do anything like that. That meant the most to me. And all of the other was just sort of secondary. Uh, it would have been nice to hear that, but yeah, I had such low expectations that uh, <clears throat> I didn't really, um, I didn't really need all that much from her validation, actually. Okay. I had spent the work doing the work of validating myself. Wow. Yeah. And I think that's the key work. Uh, everybody else is, you know, I'm sure when this book comes out, there will be people in my family or wherever who would, this guy who talked to my father, who was a psychic, I'm sure he won't believe me, you know, but um, mm-hmm. so be it. But I believe me. And, yeah. Yeah. And that's really, I think, the heart of how you can move along. And I don't know if you just sort of move on. I don't quite get that. No. I think you take everything with you and do the best you can with what you're taking around. You know, like Absolutely. the whole idea that you have a garbage bag and you, you know, leave it somewhere. I, I don't, I don't buy that theory at all. No, me either. Everything, everything hangs in there some way, and it's up sure. to you to manage what you know what comes up yeah. and how you want to feel about it. So what she thought <clears throat> well, a couple of days later, and then, you know, she suggested, which was very odd for her. She said, you know, let's have a glass of wine. Uh, Cause it was a hot summer day. Let's have a glass. I mean, we didn't drink at lunch or anything, but she said, let's have a glass of wine to toast ourselves that we're here and we're together. And oh. that was like, that was a gift. Wow. Yeah. So like solidarity almost. Exactly. Hmm. Like, I mean, we saw, looked at each other, I think, in that moment and saw our relationship was primary and never mind about him um, wrecking it even more than he did. I think she saw that at some very motherly, intuitive, deep level. And that's what meant the most to her, even though it was unspoken. I could just see it on her face. Yeah. I can feel it even as you're telling that story. We had our glass of wine and clinked our glasses and. And she never mentioned it again. And I didn't okay. bring it up again. But I did wow. notice the next time I was in her apartment, my father's portrait, this little photo of him on the bookcase was gone. So, okay. So long. Yeah. <laughs> so that's very interesting, you yeah. know, knowing about your story and how, you know, that you say it's never too late to find and mend the broken places within ourselves and in our relationships with others. And as you talk in the red kitchen about, you know, this change in relationship with your mom, I would have assumed this would have been an ongoing conversation, but here Mm -hmm. you're saying it was a (laughs) one-time conversation, but that conversation changed the whole future. Yeah. How did it, how did that happen? I don't know. Um, I think my mother was ill prepared because of her gender and her time of life and, you know, how she'd grown up. I and mean, she grew up where you, you wouldn't talk about that. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. And uh, I think she had a sense that um, the life she had right now was the one she wanted to really be oh. in. 
and didn't want to drag around in the past very much. And I frankly didn't either. She's mm-hmm. not the person I wanted to go to into the past with because yeah. there was, you know, we had our terrible moments in, in adolescence and I didn't see my parents when I, you know, I didn't see them for a couple of years. They just made me too nutty. Um, I couldn't like yeah. come into my own again, you know, so. So it seems to me that you were doing your work, your yeah. personal work. She yeah. then began to do hers after his yeah. death. <clears throat> so you had your own work going separately, your own healing, your therapy. You had one hard conversation about the past, but then you guys were just like, let's move forward into who our new identity is. Exactly. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. yeah. You know, I also loved what um, you wrote about, about your book. You said this account is really about two women yourself and your mother who both surrendered for years to society's expectations before realizing there's more to life than just being a wife, mother, and dutiful daughter. You said, how about being yourself? Mm -hmm. I'm like, that is a message for the times, you know, for women to rise up and know who they are outside of the patriarchy, outside of this systemic misogyny that we've been living under. Why can't we be ourselves? Why do we have to be someone's sister, someone's mother, you know, someone's daughter? Why can't we be us? So just talk to me about that. Just your lifespan of learning this new way and what that's been like for you now well you know there's women in my past that I really admire an early college teacher Miss Putney who who I wrote the red kitchen for in college in 1960 I we sat in the student union at the University of Missouri and she read my story I have no idea what it was like then but you know there was a traumatic incident in the first chapter of the book that um, kind of propels the book forward. And um, so, you know, and like I admired her because there was no, women weren't supposed to smoke and she smoked in class and, (laughs) and she walked across the campus with a lit cigarette, you know, it was like, Oh, you know, Mrs. Putney. Wow. (laughs) She's like, I'm a badass mother. (laughs) Exactly. Yeah. Badass professor. Wow. Uh I love her. And, um, you know, I had a high school teacher who was clearly a lesbian, but no one talked about it. Mm. She lived with the, with the gym teacher. Oh, my God. And she was just, <laughs> So many gym teachers living yeah, with other female yeah, teachers. She, no one was allowed to say it. <laughs> she was great, you know, and we read, you know, like uh, leaves of grass. And my father had a fit because there was a word thighs in there, you know, and she like she was a little badass teacher. And. You know, they've been women. Grace Paley, I met Grace Paley, and uh, we weren't talking about this story, but uh, I told her about, I was writing family stories, and I said that I had applied for an MFA, and the guy who interviewed me said, well, family stories, nobody's writing those anymore. Mm-hmm. And her response, what, can I swear on this podcast? Anyway. We already have. <laughs> okay. So her response was, oh, fuck him. <laughs> You write your stories, she said. And that was really when I really started seriously thinking about writing stories. And I wrote a lot of them. Um, so, you know, it for me, looking back, the, the memoir, that's why I think writing and why I'd really like to be involved in that in some way. Writing really gave me a way to say what I wanted to say privately first and then think about 
writing professionally. And so, you know, I've written, I just submitted a story to Herstory, which is a, a publication about from women. Yeah. About uh, put us, it's called Put a Sock in It. And it was about when Catherine Harrison wrote her book about having a relationship with her father. She was 20. That book, The Kiss, really flipped me over. That, that was one of the catalysts for I got to get some help. Um, wow. Because some of the things that the people were, that men, of course, were saying about her and her book, I, I, I had lived. And um, mm. through my father, there was a Larry King show that my mother and I watched together with this man whose daughter was suing him in court years later for sexual abuse. And of course, he was totally innocent by his standards. And um, and my mother looked at him and she dropped the sound down and she turned back to me and she said, he's lying. Mm. And I mean, I was never more, I never closer to her when she saw, cause I thought he was lying too, but I was mostly focused on the way he had his hands folded. And it was exactly the way my father had his hands folded oh, wow. his lap, like a little pious old man. Yeah. I was like those moments where, you know, kind of like, shake up everything moments. Um, yeah. Uh, so it was pretty, from then on, you know, I sort of, once you've been through it, you really own yourself again. And that's, I think the reward for all the work that you have to do. And there's a lot of work involved. I think I'm still working on it. You know, I still yeah. look back and think, Oh man, you know, I should have done that better. I look at my, you know, marriages that weren't successful. I look at, I was kind of a crappy mother for years because I was so wound up myself, you know? Yeah. So, mm -hmm. you know, it's, um, and I just am grateful that I've lived this long that I've had time to process all this stuff and really look at things. I look at my mother and my grandmother in a very different way now. Um, and as far as the patriarchy, I think it's alive and well. I think no. <laughs> right. Yeah. I mean, I mean I'm throwing a lot of bricks at it, but it's still standing. Well, and you know, there's, there's places that don't get talked about very much. I, I did go to graduate school and I did have a career, so-called career in health insurance. I was a marketing VP and then for health insurance companies until I just thought it was such a terrible racket. I couldn't do it anymore mm -hmm. and left. But, um, you know, uh, the health, it's very, it's very hard to talk about this with your doctor, I think. I don't think doctors are particularly well-trained in talking mm -hmm. about it with patients. Mm -hmm. um, I think, you know, therapists do a, a lot of work trying to get people help. But, you know, like the healthcare, I'd like to, like, just example, like rape kits are in some states, I mean, they're practically, you, you know, all this. I mean, now I'm talking to the choir. Mm -hmm. You know more than I do. Yeah, about but it. I love to talk about it. <laughs> But yeah. the, health, the, the health, the health business is really significant. I think it is. Yeah. Well, uh, the backlog on rape kits are ridiculous. And yeah. then to top that off, the the healthcare field is not trauma informed. I mean, right. I just a couple months ago did like a trauma informed training to an OB gyn office like yeah. 25 physicians, most of them female, actually all of them female. Yeah. And the number of them that didn't have a clue about the things I was sharing and had yeah. never been through a trauma-informed training on just the language to use with a woman and her vagina, like it's, and when you think of one in three women coming yeah. in there have been sexually abused, yeah, 
you need to know how to talk to these girls. Yeah. It's just, and, yeah, and that goes to medical schools, medical training. Absolutely. Know. Yeah. It's That's been one of my favorite new places. I've been speaking a lot actually is medical schools. And, yeah. you know, a lot of people are like, why are you speaking to medical students? I'm like, well, cause Whoa. they really need to get this. <laughs> <Are> you kidding? <laughs> I'm and nurses as well. You know, <clears throat> and everybody, <clears throat> everybody brings their own reality to story um and so you you never know what you know what they've witnessed or what they've been through exactly uh, you're triggering in them or what they don't want to remember I mean Mm -hmm. it's very complicated but right uh, yeah health is really uh and you know when I worked in managed care and health insurance companies and worked as a consultant for a while you know most of the doctors were men right and um, there were very few women involved in all the business side of it. They were just mm-hmm. you know, trying to get through medical school and practice. Um, mm-hmm. But even as much as I right now, I have a you know general doctor. I like her a lot. Um, I don't. I think she would be speechless if I brought up my story to her. I think she wouldn't know what to say. Really, I just have this feeling she wouldn't know what to say, or want to go forward with it in a kind of, you know, but that's sort of solved by the, you get 20 minutes with your doctor now so that you don't have to bring up scary stuff. True. You yeah. can just talk about why you're there. Mm-hmm. <laughs> right. That's so yeah. true. Yeah. So, you know, everybody's kind of protected from having to really deal with this in some way, but yeah. God bless you. And yeah, you have to, yeah, for talking because that's yeah. the point. I think at this point yeah. you have to advocate for yourself. Yeah. You know, we have to recognize and I think, mm-hmm. you know, the past year, the pandemic has unearthed a lot of stuff mm-hmm. for survivors and yeah. the isolation has been enough to make us be searching for something. Yeah. Yeah. And um, it's not just going to come to us. We have to go to it. You have to go look for it. Yeah, you really do. Um, you know, when I was in therapy, the, well, first of all, there was no internet, but I wouldn't have known where to look uh, to get us. I did go to a support group one time, uh, two times actually, uh, of women, and it was not successful. Mm. Um, It's not in the book. I didn't really think about it at the time, but yeah. Yeah. I mean, was there something that stood out that made it feel not successful? Well, yeah. First, uh, it was, you know, locally, I lived in the Bay area. It was in, Mm. at at a middle school. Um, and two things. One, one of them was the, the first time around, you, you know, they, you weren't expected to tell your story. And the second time, so I was silent. And, um, and the second time, the same woman who started off the first meeting I was there was do, did it again. You know, so it was sort of like it was a the support group was more like a crutch, it seemed to be, than really mm-hmm. trying to get her to move through something. And when it got to me, I told my little story about being in the car with my father. And the woman next to me said, what? No penetration? It's like, oh, I see. So there's like a checklist. Right, right. So that's the the piece I just submitted to a magazine for women about that. Um, Hmm. And then as though that weren't just strange enough. There was a group of men that I thought were there, they were there for a pickup game at the middle school. Instead, it was uh, registered pedophiles oh, who were meeting 
in the same room we were going to vacate. What in the world? I couldn't, I, I was so stunned. Oh. That, um, Oh, I mean, I never goodness. went back. I mean, and the reason nothing was safe with that place. Wow. No, and, oh, and you so know the only, the only reason why I went back was because I was determined that I was going to tell on my father, and that just seemed the perfect group to tell on. <laughs> <laughs> right, and, and that was it. I never went back. And yeah, I, <clears throat> my therapist at the time was just very scary. She said she was very worried, like. She said, if there are tie-dye cushions and no leader, you leave. Don't go in, you know. Yeah. So, <clears throat> Yikes. Wow. So that was a that was sort of a, um an eye-opener, I guess. And uh, yeah. and you know, why I never after that experience, I really never sought another support group of any kind. And I've really never talked about this with anybody in at any length. I mean, it comes out nine again. It yeah. will come out more with the book, but right. It, <laughs> Absolutely. Not, it's not a conversation that, you know, I feel like, Hey, let's talk about it. Yeah. <laughs> let's talk about sexual abuse. But, yes. No, but you're right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. But I let's do talk. feel like it's good. Like our support groups have just been so precious and mm-hmm. so safe yeah. and just <laughs> affirming and inclusive. And I've just been, I feel like it's such a treasure to have yeah. hold space with other survivors. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. I would love if you would come to one. Oh, okay. I would love for you to consider it. I think it, yeah. you would lend so much to it. And yeah, that's just a precious space. Yeah. 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 I might be ready for a, a good, safe one now. Yeah. <laughs> right. yeah. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> So I've told you a few times about this new project that I started many, many months ago, and we just launched it. It's called Unleash. I personally think it's the perfect way to love yourself and nourish your healing journey in this new year. It's an eight-session e-course and a virtual support group for sexual abuse survivors like us. And I personally filmed hours and hours of brand new content, There's stories of over 20 of my dearest friends who will no doubt be relatable and really inspire you. Plus, we have this online platform where we meet virtually in these small confidential support group settings. It's kind of like a book club, but like a really precious one. And we just discussed the lifelong journey of healing from sexual abuse. We just started last week our first set, and it's been so fun, so sweet, so meaningful, and I can't wait to continue to meet with these groups for the next eight weeks. And we just launched the next set of sessions. If anyone is interested, please sign up now at the website, IamOneVoice.org. There's a new set of groups starting in April. It's a great time to sign up. April is Sexual Abuse Awareness Month and no better time to care for your healing journey than now. And if you aren't interested in committing to the support groups, but you still want the new content, all the videos and the new ebook, we have that option too. The healing road's long, but we don't have to walk it alone. Join us as we make 2021 a year to become Unleashed. Unleashed has officially launched. Grab your seat. Get signed up now at IamOneVoice.org. That's IamOneVoice.org. So just thinking more about, you know, the tools that have served you now in um, Mm -hmm. healing, you know, 
you talk about how tools are different, right? When you're young, the tools that helped you survive then are not yeah. the same tools that serve you now. Would you yeah. be willing to talk a little bit about maybe what does serve you now? Yeah, I think um, my expectations have changed. Mm-hmm. Um, I saw a quote one time uh, from somebody that uh, the opposite of love is not hate, but understanding. Mm-hmm. And um that was originally the title for this memoir. And then there were too many complications around the title itself. Um, <clears throat> uh, but um, I think, you know, just having some life, more life under my belt and uh, knowing really, really seeing one again, once again, every once in a while it occurs to me, oh, this is a tool I used from childhood. I don't think this serves me very well anymore. Um, And, you know, that desire to sort of remake my family, excuse me, emotionally, so that, you know, we were really more about love than all this dysfunction. Um, And so I'm really willing to say, it was a pretty screwed up family and there was a lot of good stuff that happened in my family, which is why mm-hmm. when I started reading books about abuse, I just couldn't believe these people didn't, didn't they ever sit down to dinner and have a laugh? I mean, didn't they ever go to a park and have a picnic? I mean, you know, yeah, my, it's just, it was just gruesome to read. I hmm. was, and I didn't want to write a book like that. Um, I didn't really even want to include the abuse in the, to begin with. Uh, but it was such an absent member of the family that I just had to put it in and re- re- basically the second draft of the memoir, it was in there and really the process of, of the whole memory of it was in there uh, the second time. Mm-hmm. But I, th- mm-hmm. you know, I think what for me writing has been a saving grace. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's given me tools like to write something and then look at it again and sure. say, Oh, okay. There's more there. What else did I want to say about that? Yeah. Um, Yeah. And, you know, talking to people like you and knowing that there are places I could go if I needed to go um, Mm. is really helpful. That's a tool that I never had. um, Right. I'm so thrilled that survivors now are just really dealing with it, have that. Mm -hmm. Um, I've also gotten less interested in whether anybody believes me or not it's not my it's not my burning desire you know if like somebody doesn't want to think my father in that way okay fine you know it's not since that's that's your business that's not my business I, I really am still very conscious of that I have work to do and mm-hmm. that's the primary um, goal is to keep doing the work and you know use whatever tools I have I read a lot um not necessarily about abuse, but um, just how people look at the world and try and, you know, flip it around as much as possible to see what that might have been, might have been like for my mother, what, it, you know, what that's been like for my kids who know about it. Um, hmm. You know, what was it like for anybody? Uh, so I just, I, I can't be very specific about tools except writing, reading, talking. Um, yeah. And then really being committed to yourself to believe yourself and to not um, discount yourself so quickly. Um, Cause mm. there's plenty of pressure to, 
to do to not believe yourself. Oh, sure. Even even when we're talking about rape kits, for example, Mm -hmm. I mean, that's a very hard place to be when you're in a hospital and they're talking to you or you're talking to the police or you're talking about anything. That's tough. That's really tough. So um, those are, yeah. Yeah. I think believing yourself and trusting yourself is is a huge like indicator of where you're at in your healing. Right. Yeah. Well, I do have said more than a few times in my life that, you know, my gut knows first and then my brain races to catch up. Um, Mm-hmm. And I really think that's the case, at least for me. And I think maybe for everybody, I mean, you know, yeah. I feel like, you know, all this intellectual moving around in my head, you know, it was always there in my stomach. <laughs> it always, yeah. you know, it's, and it's, I don't, you think that's a lot of the reason why we want to numb because yes, our gut exactly. knows one thing, but our exactly. brain is still stuck somewhere yeah. else. Yeah. It's like, oh, and we want to, we want to numb. Yeah. Our brain is still yeah. stuck on rather than finding the connection where we can become whole. Yeah. Intuitive. Yeah. 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 I think we like would prefer to to attribute it to indigestion rather than your gut really saying, Oh no, this is the truth. Right. Yeah. 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 Catch up. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I'm real interested if in hearing more about your trip to Africa and how that, was this like awakening for you? Yeah. Not only for, well, I don't know if it played a role in the awakening to the abuse, maybe it did, but mostly to like that role of women um, in families and the workplace and the world. Can you talk a little bit about that? Sure. Um, Well, we, we were in literally at the end of the tarmac in Kenya um, and that we, I went as an exchange student for a project. So I was working on a master's and it was part of my internship. And, you know, I hardly ever thought about Africa, even Kenya. Um, But the chance to get out was really it, Um, to just leave my life and go somewhere, leave the kids well cared for. You know, my parents lived a few doors away, you know, like, just get out, go girl. It's really the message. And I had a wonderful gay friend in graduate school and he said the same thing, go, you know, my God, go. Mm -hmm. And so I went and um, uh, I felt at home almost immediately because of the women in the community. And also because it was a community, a local hospital where I worked, I did the census for them. And um, sent down, I wrote their first administrative reports on this old Remington typewriter, which was kind of a throwback. But, um, uh, uh, you know, I was one of maybe six white people in this village. Uh And almost immediately, it didn't make any difference at all, except the kids would, when we would walk to the hospital, you know, it was a lot of walking and we didn't have cars or anything. Um, (laughs) The kids would all come out of the grade school and stand at the fence and go, good morning, Mzungas, which means people with no skin, (laughs) which is white. Wow. (laughs) They loved it. You know, they had fun and uh, they would say, good morning, Mzungas. And then they go back in their schoolroom. You know, and the women were amazing. Yeah. They did everything. Mm -hmm. Carried the water, you know, took care of the kids, did the cooking. I mean, and they're the most 
you know, inconvenient, if not primitive circumstances, yeah. you know, charcoal fires. And, and of course, the patriarchy is everywhere. The husbands or the gentlemen would gather in the town square, which was a little kind of a piece of grass with some trees uh, and with their walking sticks. And my friend, Tessa, who was with me there, she was a social worker uh, working on masters and she would, she called them the philosophers and they would stand around and talk in the afternoon when it got really hot, you know, when the women were still doing all the work. Yeah. <laughs> and I really learned so much there, like sort of simple is really often better. Mm-hmm. And the kind of, I mean, they emptied out the hospital beds every day so that we could, they could clean up and get the chickens and the cats out of the rooms. I mean, the windows were wide open and um, they went out on, you know, blankets out on the lawn and families gathered, they sang, they had, you know, little hibachi fires, they cooked. Um, It was all about community. And uh, I was not seeing that anymore. And this is, you know, 1981 in California, Reagan was president and, you know, we were just not, we were, you know, sorting people out, you know, like they're not on our team. They can't be on my team. So I was just sort of struck by how welcoming everyone was and how my color, the color of my skin made no difference to anyone. I forgot I was white after a few weeks. I mean, it just wasn't a factor. Yeah. um, Hmm. I just, you know, came into my own. I mean, I was, I saw how competent I was and how I was, really uh, well thought of by the couple, there were two doctors from the Netherlands who were there who did surgery and one of the doctors and I would, would have lunch together occasionally and talk mm-hmm. about US healthcare system, <laughs> how poor it was even in the 80s, especially in the 80s, but um, uh, I just could be me. And it gave me the, um, the grounding that I needed and this kind of the, new look at myself. I was more confidence when, confident when I came back. Mm-hmm. Although I, for the first month in, back in the U.S., I was a basket case. I, I was like, like, I remember walking into the grocery store with my kids about a week after I was back and like there was a whole aisle of potato chips. Right. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> mm-hmm. And I, could, I couldn't drive for a couple of weeks. It was just yeah. too much. Um, yeah. But, you know, I figured, okay, I'm not going to move back to Africa. I mean, I, I considered staying, I didn't want to come home. Um, mm-hmm. And it wasn't because I didn't love my kids, but I just, you oh, liked who just, you were there. I liked who I was there. And I you liked know, it's so interesting how there's so much white saviorism that happens yeah. with like mission trips and white people going yeah. to brown <laughs> countries, but then it's like, they actually save us. Oh, <laughs> you yeah. Know? I, I will say I'll give, <clears throat> I'll give my group credit. None of us thought we were going to go and mm. save anybody. That's um, good. <laughs> yeah. And one, one African-American man who uh, I didn't know well, but he was also a graduate student. He went to find his roots, and I don't think he found anything like his roots. Um, he could hardly tolerate being in the primitive village and hung out in Nairobi most of the time and mm. would, God help him. He took this 
terrible bus that the potholes were amazing. <laughs> he took this bus down to, Ni- to Nairobi more than a few times a week. I mean, one ride up was plenty for me. <laughs> it was really wild. I mean, you know, there's chickens on the bus and um, if you want to go to the bathroom, you just lined up along this ditch and <laughs> lift up your skirt and go. And, uh, you know, it's like, yeah. okay, that's your thing. You know, be, <laughs> go for it. But um, I just loved the two women. We had a social worker and the woman who was the sister who ran the hospital. All the nurses were called sister. She ran the hospital and mm. I became friends with both of them. And mm. I really, you know, missed them and thought about them for a long time afterwards. And, and uh, one kind of interesting thing about that hospital in that t- little town was that um, I saw on somehow on some international nursing site, a woman who was back there as a phys- as an inter- resident doing a residency at that very hospital and who had been born there just a few years after I had been there and had gone back to do a residency there hmm. and she had some pictures posted on the internet and honest to god that hospital looked exactly the same i could have walked right i could have <laughs> walked right into the sister's office i mean not much had changed because i believe it, it was really the end of the road um I mean, we could see uganda from a from a ridge that we could hike to so we were really at the end uh, but it was just a <clears throat> it was life-changing in like the obvious ways and life changing for me personally, that I really got a sense of, you know, I, I really kind of went back to that competent freshman and college girl that mm-hmm. this woman who used to smoke walking across the campus saw in me and said, you know, you, you could be a writer. And mm-hmm. um, sh- there's a chapter, part of a chapter in the book about her and my, mm-hmm. uh, my experience with her. And uh, so I got back to that, that kind of young woman that not the girl, but the young woman who was sort of still had some dreams left and wanted to accomplish and had yeah. some sense that she could, I guess that was the difference. Yeah. It seems to me that, you know, what you saw in that professor and some of the others that you had mentioned mm-hmm. was their willingness to live out their truth and to yeah. not be subjected to other people's expectations <clears throat> of them. Mm-hmm. You really like that. I and did. <clears throat> it took you know, 50 years for mm-hmm. you to finally yeah. unleash that part of you. Yeah. 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 I mean, I was always a, <clears throat> a little hellraiser, but not in the sense that it would do me any much good, except it felt that, you know, it felt good to tell my Raise mother, tell my mother, I called my mother a bitch one time and it felt wonderful. <laughs> 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 you know, but I was, I was probably 16 at the time, you know, so like, so what's, what else is new? <laughs> oh my gosh. She was quite shocked, but I felt quite good about it. You know, I yeah. like, oh, liking this. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So what does that look like, you know, in your fifties and, and more, you know? What does what look like? <laughs> Just the... Um, you willing to come into your own and to yeah. not be subjected to other people's expectations and be a hellraiser now. Yeah. You know, can you compare yourself now, Barbara, to the professor that you admired so much? Do you mm-hmm. feel like you are, you know, gathering the things that you really admired about her and, yeah. and able to like live that out in your own life now? I feel like I'm in her club. And yeah. That, yeah. And it feels really, uh, yeah, a good club to be in, you know, it's like, yeah. <clears throat> there was something seeing, seeing her and her 
blowing off, you know, some of the rules of, uh, at the university gave me permission through the rest of my life to blow off some rules myself. Mm -hmm. um, I think those early influencers kind of stick with you. And um, I mean, obviously she had, I can still remember her name. I can't remember very many professors I ever had, but I remember Mrs. Putney as though it were, I was, you know, walking into her office. Um, but I think that, that <clears throat> those early um, pictures of women kind of being the, on the, you know, themselves and really not giving a damn what somebody else might think at, at some level. Um, I mean, she was very respectful of students and so forth, but she just wasn't going to play the game about you can't smoke because she smoked, you know, it's like mm -hmm. <laughs> what girls aren't supposed to know. Kids aren't supposed to know we smoke in college, you know, it's like, really? <laughs> so, yeah, I think that that, you know, all that, it's just like abuse. It, none of it leaves. And I think part of the tool that you're asking about is to pick the things that work for you that those tools and let the rest go. Mm. Um, you know, you can beat yourself up forever. I could, you know, I could do a, a whole novel on, you know, all of my feelings, but I'm just not sure that that does anything. I would really rather be uh, on this path that I'm on right now than on the one I had been on, mm -hmm. uh, you know, failed marriages and, you know, not a great mother and, you know, not a dutiful daughter and all the knots. I want to be the yeses, you know, not mm -hmm. the noes. Um, so, so those kinds of women, you know, just, um, and I, some women I just find annoying. I think that um, they're not role models for me. Uh, mm -hmm. I, I don't appreciate, I don't appreciate who they are in, in the same way. I just, you know, they're fine to be who they are, but they're not one of them. And they're, they're not a club I want to be in, you know? So, um, mm -hmm. I think you have to pick carefully who you, who, I would say you're a great role model. I think oh. <laughs> yeah, I have a hunch you have a lot of, a lot of people will have you in their lives for the forever. Mm. Thanks, Barbara. Yeah. You're my role model. <laughs> That's so sweet. Oh. Um, yeah. I just, I'm really excited to promote your book, The Red Kitchen. And yeah. at the end, we'll have you share where people can find that. But before we let you go, mm -hmm. um, one, this was really inspiring and such a, a great part of my day. Thank you so much for this. Oh, Secondly, you. what is your hope um, for your book? What do you hope readers will take away from it? Oh, well, and you can name a few. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, I want them to see that you can start off bad and end up good. I think that's the main thing. Um, yeah. And also the reconciliation with my mother is important to me. And also telling my story about my father. Um, you know, it's the last thing I really wanted to do, but it seems to me like almost the first thing that needed to happen in order for me to do the rest. Um, <clears throat> I don't think if I'd had that memory and been clear and taken it home, my mother and I would have had the same relationship for the rest of our lives together. Um, right. So she lived to 97. So we had wow. 20 years of um, being friends. Um, well, I, well, I will just share this part. There's a whole chapter devoted to my mother and sex, but my mother had said to me that she'd never had an orgasm in sex. So I bought her a vibrator. And um, I read that and I died. <laughs> and um, 
she even gave it a name. She called it Mr. Wright. And, um, and you know, she said it often said, you know, it's the best birthday present I ever got. You know, like, why can't she have an orgasm? You know, and I live, I'd live close to Berkeley where Good Vibrations store was. So, you know, what's not, what's not to do here? It just seems so obvious to me. And I've told that story to a number of my female friends who go, oh, my God, I would never do that for my, I would never do that with my mother. I wouldn't even speak of it. It's like, how old right. are you? You know, like, really? Yeah. Yeah. Are you still a child? Yeah. Although no judgment, I would have a hard time with that too. But yeah. Well, that's my why mother, you're my role model. My mother was just, you know, she was really interested in sex and she was, she was like a piggy bank that, you know, got opened when, when we started talking and questions about sex, she just loved to talk about it, you know, like, Aww. okay, here we go. I mean, was I didn't she like asking you for like advice or just like, she was just very she interested and just, just wanted to know what was going on. You know, like she wanted to know how women had sex. And um, mm. in fact, she asked me that one time we had some friends over uh, for dinner and um, it was a lesbian couple. And uh, my father and my mother were there. They were visiting with Thanksgiving and, um, and they were clearly lesbians. I mean, they were holding hands and nobody made a secret of it. They were completely out. And uh, after they left, my mother said, well, how do women have sex? And my father was having a cup of coffee in the kitchen. And I started to say, and he said, oh, you've got to be kidding. I mean, it was almost like a yuck moment for him. And he mm. fled to the living room and watched, you know, the Brady Bunch of my kids or something. He just couldn't handle it. It's like, mm. here's Mr. Sophisticated, you know, I'm a man of the world. It's like, you don't know yeah. much, buddy. Well, <laughs> men don't want to think they're not needed. Yeah. So, yeah, my, my you know, it was just, it was, a, it was funny and fun and really um I think generous of me and, uh, f- and good for my mother. Just like, you don't have to, you know, you don't have to wait until you meet some guy. This, you can do this yourself. Right. She had a little book. She had a book, Sex for One, and uh, um, that I bought her to go with it. And she'd read her book and <laughs> take Mr. Wright out of his box. <laughs> oh, my goodness. Can you imagine if she ever got into TikTok? <laughs> oh, Lord. <laughs> Yeah, Mary. Yeah, it's good. All that that came after her life. Yeah, yeah. She was she she the closest she got to like our modern world was she would send my kids emails when she was over at my house. She thought that was really groovy to send. Them. <laughs> I mean, she was really with it. <laughs> yeah, and she knew about you know like you know the the, the you know the tra- empty your trash can and all that sort. Of. She she had a few lingo pieces of lingo down, but yeah. Yeah. Oh, that's so yeah. cute. Yeah. Wow. It's really neat to see how your relationship just evolved so much in the later years. And yeah. it seems like it really came out of just the truth telling. And again, you said like just the breaking down of the expectation of yeah. roles and titles and yeah. just to be yourselves, both of you to be yourselves and come yeah. back together in that relationship yeah. that way. That's yeah. so. Cool. Yeah. I mean, the definition of love I would have had at 20 um, and the definition I have now of love is quite different. I mean, it, and, mm-hmm. you know, four children for my mother, um, you know, really helped me reform what I think love can include and what it can leave out. Um, so that's sort of that same issue, you know, about my father, you know, like I could still say I love him, mm-hmm. but only because there's this thing. He was my father. Um, 
and I, the love doesn't carry the same weight or even much to it now, except the, you know, DNA part of, of that. Um, but so you would say there's different levels of love for you. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And different intensities of love too. I mean, you know, yeah. um, you know, two daughters and I even love this silly cat that's still asleep over there. So. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but she's a cat and I'm clear about that. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Oh, that's amazing. Yeah. So just for your book, just really hoping uh-huh. that people can, I think, maybe open their minds and, and yeah. be willing to kind of see things a little bit in a different light and know that there is a possibility for change, even in the yeah. later years, it sounds like. And, and also that it's not grim. I didn't want it to be a grim story. I just wanted yeah. to be, you know, honest and. Yeah. That's what great much, memoirs do, right? Fun, as much, yeah. As much humor and fun as possible without, yeah. you know, ignoring the obvious, but yeah. Right. Yeah. Well, how exciting. Well, Barbara, please tell us where can people find your book? It's coming out this April, correct? April 6th, uh-huh. Yeah, Amazon and, and um, wherever you would buy your books. Uh, but I would champion the bookstore, your local bookstore, to support yeah. them, especially through the pandemic. All right. Well, Barbara, you enjoy your day and um, we'll hopefully connect again in real life. Yes, that would be lovely. <laughs> Thank you so much for listening. Be sure to subscribe, write a review if you heard something you liked, even invite others to listen so we can be on this healing journey together. You can check us out on Facebook or go to IamOneVoice.org.